You're listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris Kidwell and Sam Glover. So today we've got a special edition of our podcast for you. We are going to be uh, taking a look at what is often referred to as blueprint or pattern theology. This is something that one of our listeners requested of us. We're going to leave her anonymous uh, given that we hadn't talked to her about mentioning her specifically on the podcast, but um, we'd been asked to cover this, and there was a specific book, uh, Searching for the Pattern by John Mark Hicks, Dr. John Mark Hicks, that uh, was specifically brought up in the request. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about blueprint theology in general, pattern theology in general, and we're also going to provide a sort of review of the book because it's probably the most recent relevant work uh, on the on the book, um, and Dr. Hicks being a uh, fairly well-known, well-respected voice uh, is, is worth discussing his work. It's worth discussing what he has to say about it. Sam, as we get started today, uh, let's just ask the question, what is in your own words, we'll get to Dr. Hicks's words later on. What is blueprint or pattern theology? Uh, blueprint, uh, pattern theology. Uh, there are jokes I could make about it, uh, uh, jokes I have made about it, but I won't uh, hear just yet. Uh, to actually sort of address the question, pattern theology is a, at least in my view and how I've seen it used, and performed is the practice of studying scripture both within a fairly strict framework uh, as far as how it is read and the goals that one has going into reading scripture but also with the goal of developing a more or less strict pattern usually with reference to how worship is done how local congregations are organized and how those local congregations govern themselves and go about the work of the church, quote unquote. Right. And, and those specific areas, uh, you'll see this, and this is something that virtually every book on the subject, uh, at least within churches of Christ, uh, either for or against it will bring up things like the five acts of worship. For instance, that they see a pattern for, uh, you know, giving and partaking of the Lord's Supper and singing and prayer and preaching as being the five acts of worship and, and nothing else could, should really be considered worship. And within those five acts, you have different uh, ways of doing it, some of which are biblically authorized, most of which are, uh, well, anything that wouldn't be biblically authorized uh, would be prohibited and, and sort of coupled with pattern theology. Uh, we have the uh, what's called the principle of silence, uh, which goes back to that regulative principle, uh, which is I'll, I'll let you define that. What's that regulative principle uh, or that uh, that law of silence that often gets discussed with regard to pattern theology? Well, law of prohibitive or inclusive silence is the restoration or the Stone Campbell movement's unwitting plagiarism of the regulative principle or that regulative principle if you're one of the cool and hip reformed kids. But the regulative principle 
is a principle of studying and interpreting scripture most commonly associated with the reformed wing of the Protestant Reformation, uh, most common in the writings of Calvin and his uh, intellectual and theological progeny, uh, codified most strongly by the Puritans, uh, depending on who you ask, who called it the Jus Divinium or the divine law. And in very simple, blunt terms, the regulative principle dictates that, especially with reference to worship, that only what is commanded is authorized. And to go outside of that is to break divine law. That is put in contrast to what is sometimes called the normative principle, which dictates that culture, context, environment, and even in some cases, preference can have a much more have, can have much more say in making decisions about those things than they would in a purely regulative principle uh, area. So you, you mentioned the plagiarism on the part of the early restorers. Um, that would be something like Campbell saying, speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible is silent, would probably be a very concise way of that, uh, of that regulative principle. Although by no means is that uh, comprehensive uh, in any stretch, you know, one phrase sort of defining the work of the church, even with regard to that one principle. Right. And to be clear, when I say unwitting plagiarism, I don't mean that like any restoration leaders were actually going out of their way to steal ideas without crediting them, uh, mainly because I would like to think that most of those men had more integrity than that. Um, in fact, I'm quite confident they did. When I say an unwitting plagiarism, it is more that the modern uh and when I say modern, really, I should be more fair and just say kind of that the 1950s really hard wave put these ideas forth. And depending on the literature you read, there is a tendency to act like the churches of Christ were the first people to think of things like the regulative principle or a law of silence, uh, where you'll read uh, some books that discuss uh the uh, Springfield, I believe, Presbytery, uh, like Last Will and Testament, uh, and saying this is the most important and influential document in Christendom since the publication of the New Testament. And I read that and I just want to pour hot oil over my eyes. But anyway, getting away from all of that, when I say I'm winning plagiarism, all I'm referring to there is a tendency in some people that is not exclusive of us to not realize that ideas existed before we did. So just want to make that clear. Sure. Yeah. And, and that's something um, when, when the words change, when the language changes a little bit, that can be obscured. Of course, it's not necessary uh, to adhere to something uh, or to need to know the background of a particular principle of a particular pattern of thinking before you actually adhere to that pattern of thinking, if you will. Um, yeah, but it, it, it's worth noting that, you know, this didn't start with Campbell saying, 
uh, speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible is silent. It didn't start in the 1950s. It didn't start at your favorite school of preaching. Um, you know, this is something that has some historical significance, certainly within churches of Christ, uh, but even outside of them. Um, of course, we would disagree uh, with people, certain people outside of churches of Christ on how to apply the principles, which is something we're going to get into, I think, when we talk about uh, John Mark Hick's books or book rather. But this is something that the, the, the concept of letting the Bible speak for itself uh, and not going beyond what Scripture has to say about different issues, a very conservative approach to Scripture, a very conservative approach uh, to worship, to the practice of a Christian and the practice of the church. Uh, it, it, it's not new by any stretch. It's not even relatively new. It's not an invention of the past 300 years. It's something that extends far beyond that. And to be clear, when I say conservative, I don't mean uh, the sort of connotations that are often associated with that. I just simply mean, you know, we're only going to go as far as what Scripture has to say about an issue. Uh, you know, the very literal definition of what it means to be conservative when approaching an issue. And that's that's not new with us. Uh, and that sort of brings me to, I guess, my own background, and I'll let you speak for yourself. Um, but, you know, growing up and, and still largely today, uh, but growing up, I, you know, I grew up in churches that preached and taught and practiced uh, a lot of the things that are a part of blueprint and pattern theology. Um, you know, I was taught those five acts of worship, those five exclusive acts of worship. Uh, you know, I was taught uh, with regard to music in worship and what is allowed and what is not allowed according to the law of silence and according to, you know, the very limited information in the New Testament about those practices. Um you know, it's something that's very much a part of my background and still very much a part of my practice now. Uh, and, and so it's it's something that, you know, to be clear, to sort of acknowledge the bias before we uh, before we have that full blown discussion over it and, and that full blown discussion over Dr. Hicks book. Um, you know, that's sort of the angle I'm coming from at this is is, you know, these are things that I am very comfortable talking about because they're very much. Uh, a part of what's shaped my theology, what's shaped my ecclesiology, uh, and what shape uh, it's very much a part of uh, shaping basically what I'm about to say. Granted, uh, you know, I have a few concerns that we'll address uh, with regard to that, but that's sort of my background on this. It's sort of where I'm coming from on this. And, you know, when, uh, when Dr. Hicks mentions certain authors, he mentions Thomas Warren a few times in the book. You know, that's some someone I grew up. I didn't hear him myself. I'm not. I wasn't old enough to be able to do that. But you know, heard him quoted. Uh, I've got a copy of Goebel Music's book. By the way, great name. Uh, Behold the pattern on my bookshelf. I remember seeing it growing up on my dad's bookshelf. Right, and he probably got his copy from his dad. Uh, and so when it comes to this pattern theology, you know, it, it's something I'm quite familiar with and quite comfortable with. Uh, I'm curious, and I guess I'm being a little nosy here, uh, if you would 
sort of uh, differ substantially, at least um, in in how you're going to approach this, or at least the background from which you're approaching this. Well, uh, first, uh, Chris, I'd say mind your business. Yeah. <laughs> More <laughs> seriously, though, um, my background is a little bit different, I would think. Uh, mainly uh, for two factors. One, I didn't really care about all that Jesus stuff until roughly my junior year and senior year of high school. Uh, I, I was baptized uh, and made, I believe, a genuine profession of faith when I was about 13 years old. So I don't, I don't question my place within. Uh, God's people or anything, but uh, it was kind of baptism, get thrown into band camp in high school, and then just kind of gradually not be any different from anyone else. So that's part of the background. The other part is that a great deal of my growing up was um, on uh, two different congregations, one being my home congregation that I was born into, uh, born on a Thursday, brought to church there that following Sunday. Nurses would probably tear their hair out hearing that now. Uh, that being Strickland Church of Christ, and then another being Pleasant Grove. At Strickland, especially since I was younger, pattern theology wasn't really presented to me explicitly. Uh, there was a lot of there was probably a lot of the language that arises out of the use of pattern theology, but our pulpit minister, who's been there now, goodness, for nearly 40 years, so longer than I've been alive, uh, he doesn't really spend much time belaboring those things. And that's partially because he very much prefers to preach through bodies of texts, but also... He's a very practical preacher. He preaches on very practical matters most of the time. So outside of specific requests or times when there were guest speakers, I remember uh, one of Dr. Ralph Gilmore uh, coming to Strickland a few times growing up. uh, And I remember him being asked about things like instrumental music and things like that, but it wasn't really talked about much at Strickland. On the other hand, at... uh, Pleasant Grove, the second congregation I went to growing up, um, it wasn't really driven home to us. And uh, the closest we ever really got was that for a few weeks, we uh, were studying through why I am a member of the Church of Christ by, is the man's name Leroy Brownlow? I'm revealing that's, my lack of COC credentials by the fact it. that I don't just remember the man's name off the top of it. Yep, that's, anyway. uh, you're, you're, you're right there, Leroy Brownlow. Great. And I was about as interested in that as you can guess that a functioning atheist and a teenager would be. And just kind of found some of the arguments to be kind of... Uh, banal just kind of reading them and thinking like okay why are we talking about this like why is this an argument that people had uh but that's also a a product of the fact that i tend to think in very straight lines they might be long-winded straight lines but they are straight lines nonetheless so 
I've never really been persuaded by arguments outside of a specific set. And so there's all of that. I only really came around to discussions around pattern theology uh, when I started at Freed. Um, there were whole arguments and discussions that people were having that I was thinking, really? Like, is this a thing? I'm more worried about there being whole groups of people that deny the deity of Christ, or I'm more concerned about uh, Mormons and how so much of their theology is so frankly bizarre and unbiblical, and in some cases anti-biblical. And so questions like, is all of life worship? And things like that, they would kind of just bounce off of my forehead as kind of things that I would look at and think, why are we arguing about this? Are there not more fruitful and beneficial things? Which is all very ironic because Strickland, as I understand it, my home congregation, was founded out of a group of Christians coming together to worship after a debate over saints-only benevolence between one hires and one bigam. So, again, very ironic that all of that emphasis is, was kind of underspoken, despite that uh, congregation's historical origins. So that's, that was kind of where I'm at. So it's something that you ultimately came into contact with um, a little bit later on. It's something that uh, I don't know if it wasn't as firmly ingrained or what it was. I mean, I grew up going to uh, Memphis School of Preaching Lectureships. I did that uh, two or three different years. My parents would pull me out of school uh, to attend those lectureships. And uh, sometimes those would be the topics is, you know, here's here's the pattern. Um, here's the pattern for worship in this instance. Here's the pattern for worship in this instance. Here's what the leadership of the church ought to look like. Um, here's what the uh, here's what all these different things ought to be. Um, and so with with that, you know, like I said, I grew up around it, you know, being one of the dominant issues. And so it's interesting, you know, just to hear the perspective of someone who did not grow up uh, at least not as attuned to that, uh, if you will. You know, it, can I offer a further point of reference for how far removed I managed to be from all of this? Sure thing. I don't recall even knowing that Memphis School of Preaching existed until the summer before I went to Freed Hardeman. And, and that you, was only because I met a friend that was thinking about going there at some point. And you lived like two hours maybe from it? Give or take. Yeah. And again, that's and that's not a knock against Memphis School of Preaching. It's just that's how important it was to people. Um, the default for us in in the Strickland bubble and ethos was that if you were going to a state school, you were probably going to go to Mississippi State uh, because most of the people that I went to that made up the the Strickland bubble were either people involved in agriculture, some engineers, one of our elders was a lifelong uh, a civil engineer for MDOT, that sort of thing. So if you were going into a secular school, you went to MSU because they had a lot of very practical kind of hands-on degrees. If you were going to a Christian school, you were going to go to free. I didn't know other places existed like that. That's kind of how small my world was. 
and kids went to Rush every year, that sort of thing. That was kind of my bubble and point of reference. I didn't go to Rush because, again, I didn't care about it, but that's kind of where we were. Well, I part of the reason I wanted to bring up the background is, and at this point we'll move into a discussion of of Hicks's work, is because that that's how John Mark Hicks, uh, that's how, how Dr. Hicks starts his work. Uh, just to give a brief overview of the book, um, there's four main sections of the book plus three appendices at the end, uh, in addition to preface, acknowledgments, all the typical stuff you'd get with a book like this. Um, and in the first major section of the book, he talks about his background. And in fact, the, the first section is entitled How I Learned to Read the Bible. Uh, and he talks about that with regard to specific issues, um, the work of the church. He talks about sort of the uh, the inst- or the mainstream non-institutional split. He talks about the saints only doctrine. And, and we'll jump into some of those specific issues in just a bit. But he he spends a good deal of time uh, talking about his background. Uh, and one of the things I'm going to go ahead and show my hand a little bit here. Uh, but one of the things I appreciate probably most about the book um, is the level of appreciation and admiration he has for those uh, in mainstream churches of Christ with whom he clearly disagrees, at least on some level. Uh, with regard to their uh, their hermeneutic, our her- hermeneutic, or or well, their hermeneutic. We'll we'll talk about our her- hermeneutic in a minute. Um, but clearly, uh, you know, he disagrees. What I, I bring that up because oftentimes, when I have encountered people who have become more, we're going to say progressive in their beliefs. I don't quite know if that's the right word. Um, but I, I think it's probably the, the most concise word that I can think of, um, who have at one point adhered to this herm, hermeneutic, this blue, this blueprint uh, pattern theology, uh, you know, this patternistic reading of scripture, and left that for anything else. One of the things I often see either in their words or their speech is a certain level of resentment. Uh, a certain level of, at times, bitterness and hatred for what they used to believe, and sometimes that even extending to the people who still currently believe it. Um, you know, that y- there's a lot of browbeating that goes on uh, from people who have left against people who are still there, still here, if you will, uh, still in mainstream congregations. Uh, mainstream churches of Christ. That's the thing that that stuck out to me, um, you know. And, and before we dive any further in, you know, wh- one of the things I would mention is, even if you're reading this and you, or, or even if you're considering reading the book and and you're wondering about Dr. Hicks, uh, Dr. Hicks's perspective on this. It's something that even if you find him, uh, even if you find what he has to say uh, to be incorrect, if you don't agree with him, he still treats the issue with a certain level of care and a certain level of respect for those with whom he disagrees in large part because of the background, because he was 
uh, raised in this uh, patternistic theology. Uh, moving very quickly, just through the overview, part two is entitled Something's Amiss, and it talks about, okay, he, he starts to notice some of the problem he perceives, some of the problems he perceives with uh, blueprint theology, uh, a blueprint reading of the text. Part three, he starts to explore alternative interpretations, alternative hermeneutics. And then in part four, he starts to talk about different applications of this. And then finally, I'm going to go ahead and mention the three appendices because I, I think they're valuable enough. Um, really, the three appendices are probably worth the uh, the price of admission, if you will, the price of the book all on their own, just because you get to sort of see uh, his conclusions uh, in action, what it looks like. Uh, to apply what he will ultimately call a theological reading, a theological hermeneutic uh, to some specific situations. Appendix one is three specific situations. Um, and so with that background and keeping that in mind, I'm curious, Sam, what we'll start positive. What positive things did you see in the book? What what did you like? Uh, what stuck out to you? The number one with a bullet positive thing is that this is clearly not a declaration of war. If it is, it's the most flowery, indirect, and non-threatening declaration of war that I've ever seen in my entire life. And I've read The Art of War, I've read On War, so I, I know what war declarations are supposed to look like. This isn't one of those. Um, there are a few places and when I say a few I mean I can count them on one hand because I kind of just marked them down and made note of them where I think Dr. Hicks is letting his uh, disagreements or some priors kind of interfere in a fair treatment but that's again that's you can count those on one hand in my estimation and on a book that has on Kindle 2,973 locations, so I'm going to assume about 200 pages print, five or fewer gaffes in statement or judgment, that's a rock-solid percentage that's commendable. And uh, if anything, the only way that could be construed as a negative is that it would be the book is at times saccharine. There are just times where you need a bag of chips that you're just shoveling down your throat because you need something salty with how sweet this book is. And sometimes sweet is good. And especially in this case, sweet is good because it helps the more controversial or the more forceful statements go down. So there's that. It is clear and apparent to any, I think, fair reader of the text that John Mark Hicks loves the Stone Campbell tradition. He loves the churches of Christ. He does not wish ill on anyone in our little neck of the woods or anyone I could think of specifically for that matter. So there's that. Of It is a very gentle book in many respects. Secondly, uh, the first half, especially the narrative, is very easy to read and for people like us who are more familiar with the Churches of Christ, we can read this. And even with my limited background, I can read this and think, 
you know, I can relate to a lot of this, or I see phrases that I recognize. Uh, I see arguments that I recognize. I see instances of conflict that I recognize, and I've seen other people work out. It's a very relatable book for us. The flip side of that being, of course, that if you are not familiar with the Churches of Christ, this book is going to be abject nonsense to you for about 50% of the pages. Uh, and that's not a flaw. It's by design. It's not for the Reformed Presbyterian world. It's not for the Wesleyan Armenian world. It is for us. And sometimes we need a book for us. Um, there's also just the fact that, in addition, Marx is a... Ja Marx, good grief. He's definitely no Karl Marx. Dr. Yeah. Hicks <laughs> is a... Uh, Dr. Hicks is a clear writer. Uh, his prose isn't overly dense. There is a lot of Christianese, and I actually bookmarked the part uh, of the book where I just kind of left a note, and I said, this is where I got tired of the Christianese, but that's going to happen no matter what. That's just, that is inevitable. And also an effect of the fact that I read books like a person who is not well. I'll read half a book in a couple of hours, and then I'll pick it up again and do that same thing. And then I wonder why I have fatigue at it. And so lots of positives, uh, but a more substantive one, because those are kind of ornamental. Uh, the main substance is that I think that Dr. Hicks presents overall a convincing case for the utility of his hermeneutic or his proposals about hermeneutics. Uh, that I don't think that he would claim are entirely original to him, but um, his steps, his processes, without insisting that Cine or the like be completely abandoned or discarded. And that is a strength, I think, and we can build on that later. But overall, that is probably the greatest strength of the book, that uh, Dr. Hicks presents a strong, clear case and illustrates his case through those appendices, uh, which, again, I would agree the appendices are worth the price of admission, especially since I was able to pay $5 for the book. Yeah. So. And, and that's that's worth noting. A uh, couple of things uh, to mention here. You got the page limit pretty close to correct. You said 200-something pages. Uh, Amazon's got it listed at 246 uh, for the paperback copy. So there you go. Congrats. Um, right on. Be, beyond that, uh, yeah, I mean, the book is cheap enough. You can actually read it for free if you have Kindle Unlimited. It's $5 on Kindle. It's $10 for the paperback. Like, it, it's, uh, if it's not already been clear anyway, sometimes, you know, we'll, you'll see in book reviews whether you'll get the recommendation toward the end. I think both of us can go ahead and tell you now it's worth it's worth picking up a copy. One hundred percent. That doesn't mean we're going to agree with all the conclusions. We're going to talk about that later. Uh, but it, but it's absolutely worth reading, uh, picking up a copy and reading it. I was able to read this in two sittings, which speaks to the ease with which um, you can read uh, Dr. Hicks' writing. Um, and so, like you said, it, it's 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 a fairly easy read that's not to say that it's written at a remedial level or anything like that i think the bet the best way to say it is is that it's an engaging read um you know i it's something that i had a hard time putting down uh you know especially in the first part of the book um and so 
you know, when, when we look at that, that when we look at the book, you know, by and large, I have a lot of positive things to say about it. Like, like you've mentioned, um, one of the things that sort of stuck out to me in the beginning uh, is how he framed the issue. Uh, and, and I, I think it's the best possible way he could have framed the issue. Uh, even though, like you said, for those outside of churches of Christ, it's kind of something hard to fathom. Uh, and that is between the split between what we're going to call mainstream churches of Christ uh, and what we're going to call non-institutional churches of Christ. Uh, mainstream being exactly what it sounds like. Probably 90% of uh, congregations in the U.S. This is ballpark numbers off the top of my head, but I, I think he appeals to this 90-10% split at some point in the book um, or a similar split. But probably 90% of congregations in the U.S. Uh, that uh, that identify as churches of Christ would fit the descriptor of mainstream in that, you know, they're relatively conservative with how they approach scripture, with how they approach worship and the life of the church otherwise, but they participate in supporting outside works, that they have uh, different facilities that are used for uh, events and gatherings that are not worship exactly uh and they support other institutions if you will whereas non-institutional congregations uh don't do that they don't support outside works they don't support parachurch organizations they don't support different societies and of course this is a this is a spectrum it's not simply a binary thing but he frames uh the the issues with pattern theology within that split. And I think that's very helpful because it's something that the people who have grown up in this environment with regard to pattern theology are going to be fairly close to. Uh, you know, we have a congregation, a non-institutional congregation, about 10 minutes away from where I preach. Uh, we understand why we go where we go, and we understand why they go where they go. You know, there are some differences that should be reconcilable, but aren't, uh, or at least haven't been to this point. And, and he frames the issue as basically saying, with regard to pattern theology, um, he frames the issue by really, really honing in on that split, on the inconsistencies of using pattern theology for some particular issues, but not others, and sort of where to draw the line. Um, it's also something he mentions, you know, basically uh, from the early part of the 1900s, especially the 1950s, but even earlier than that, up until very recently, that split's been you know, it's it's existed and it has been at times rather bitter. I mentioned up until recently because although he doesn't mention the book specifically or any specific events leading to progress in that regard, um, we have made some progress there. Uh, there's one book that was published, Pursuing the Pattern, which is uh, a series of essays between uh, 
mainstream members of the church and non-institutional members of the church uh, were basically one person from each side, if you will, writes about a particular issue. And so for those of you listening who are a part of uh, mainstream congregations, there are some names here you're going to recognize. Greg Tidwell, Phil Sanders, Aubrey Johnson, Randy Duke, Chad Ramsey, Donnie DeBoard, that's friend of the show, Donnie DeBoard, and Matthew Morine. Uh, I might not have pronounced his last name correctly, but all of them uh, contribute to the book. And it's something that you, you look at uh, uh, you look at some of that progress that's been made, and that's relatively recent. But in, anyway, circling back around to what I was saying is he, he harps on an issue that I think a lot of members of mainstream churches sort of overlook. They sort of obscure it, uh, that you know they, they use a blueprint pattern theology uh, for what they want to use it for, but they don't – it's not that uh, they've reconciled that with these other issues. It's that they basically ignore the other issues by and large. Again, I'm not speaking for everyone. I'm just speaking in my own experience when it comes to these non-institutional uh, congregations with these non-institutional Christians, if you want to call them that. That seems a little strange. But – uh, Dr. Hicks really focuses in on that particular issue at different points in the book is basically saying, you know, it, if I'm not able to apply this consistently, uh, then I've got to figure out exactly how I'm supposed to use this. And I think that's that's helpful. Um, it's helpful to point out the inconsistencies with which we will use our hermeneutics if we're not careful. Uh, and and it's. It's worth that self-reflection uh, that a study like that will inspire, if you will. Right. And that consistency is what really uh, put me more or less on Dr. Hicks's side. Because, Chris, you might not know this about me. People that know me would never figure it out. But I value consistency in everything. I, I'm, I try to be a remarkably consistent person in every area of my life. I don't nail that because, well, that's kind of the nature of it. But consistency, uh, to borrow the words of one uh, a theologian and apologist who has fallen out of public favor recently, inconsistency is the sign of a failed argument. And because, again, I like to think in straight lines, I value consistency. I value being able to proceed from point A to point B to point C without bumps in the road. And when there are bumps in the road, that makes me pull over and figure and want to figure out why what's going on here. So especially framing that in the question of, OK, how can I be consistent in how I approach the text and how can I apply the tools in my toolbox in a way that doesn't necessarily feel good. I, like Dr. Hicks is not a feel-good person. He's not looking to feel good as his goal. But in a way that doesn't make me feel like I've missed something or that I've made a misstep, there's value to that, and it also frames the discussion sympathetically. Because, as he notes, there is a temptation, not just in our neck of the woods, but in theology as it is practiced, if we are not careful, we end up assuming the worst about the people we disagree with. 
we end up assuming, well, this person doesn't love the Lord or this person doesn't care about what the Bible says. And there are going to be people of whom that is true. But one, I need evidence before I make that accusation. And two, I need to be careful that I'm not throwing that out willy-nilly or as an excuse to dismiss people I disagree with. And so, especially as Hicks begins to build everything and frame it, that's helpful to really pull on that thread of consistency and say, this is where things kind of started to come untangled for me. Well, well, and coupled with that on sort of a practical level, um, if your hermeneutic isn't perfectly consistent, or at the very least, if you have to apply it differently in different situations, you need to at least be honest about that. And that's that's something that we have traditionally struggled with uh, with regard to these issues is we apply them to worship and we we apply a pretty hard line stance to it. Uh, but we we don't do as good of a job uh, demonstrating uh, why we handle things like the support of outside works and uh and, you know, other seemingly trivial things. And, and that's that's the thing. If you're an outside reader, you're going to look at some of these issues and think that it's trivial and it's not worth arguing about. And at least on some of those things, I would probably agree. But, you know, at the same time, you know, even on the trivial things, you need to be consistent or at the very least you need to be honest about your inconsistency. And that's something that we're not very good about doing, or at least traditionally we haven't been. And so he does a good job of, of basically uh, making the reader confront the issue, um, just tackle the issue head on. Here, here's the issue, and it's you know it's very personal. It's not it's not written from an ivory tower. I mean, the subtitle of the book is "My Journey in Interpreting the Bible." These are all things that he himself struggled with. Uh, these are all things that he continues to struggle with, although he's probably a bit firmer now on some of these issues than he was, uh, you know, uh, 38 plus years ago. And so when it comes to uh, when it comes to these issues, uh, you know, he's, he's writing about them, understanding uh, the inconsistency that actually exists. It's it's not it's not something that. Uh, he conjures on his own. It's not a straw man. And so he does a good job in forcing the reader to confront some issues that many readers of the text, especially uh, that would come from a mainstream background, either haven't considered or don't want to consider or don't think are worth considering. And he, he basically points out why they're worth considering. Um, the first the first two chapters do a great job in basically illustrating uh, the issues that have existed within churches of Christ, the bitter issues uh, that have caused churches to divide and divide and divide and divide and divide, um, you know, to the point where you've got congregations that are right down the street from one another who have no relationship with each other whatsoever. Um, you've got major movements within the history of the church centered around one or two specific issues. 
You know, there was a Sunday school movement within Churches of Christ at one point. That was a big debate a while back. You know, what, what, maybe a century ago now? Um, you know, and, and one of the things you harped on with regard to church history, uh, for those that are unfamiliar with Dr. Hicks, those that are unfamiliar with his background, uh, he's one of the foremost scholars on church history within Churches of Christ. Um, you know, he is he's very. I may. Yes. He has a degree from Westminster Theological Seminary and beautiful. Glensdale, Pennsylvania. I've been there and seen it. It's very lovely. Uh, in Reformation and Post-Reformation Studies, he is, in fact, one of the leading reasons that I chose to pursue historical theology myself. So you can blame him for all my eccentricities, is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> but that's a point of reference for where he's at and what his credentials are to discuss church history. He's he's well qualified. Yeah, he's an authority figure. Um, and you... Uh, on a certain level, uh, you know, you might regard him, depending on where you're at, as one of the leading authority figures, uh, at least within Churches of Christ, uh, and certainly an authority figure as far as understanding our background. Um, and so I thought he did. I thought he did a very good job, uh, sort of illustrating that. Um, and the other thing is, there's a certain level of humility with which he presents uh his his theology uh his theological hermeneutic uh, which we'll discuss shortly um but there's a certain level of humility with which he presents that uh and even though he's sort of moved on from the blueprint hermeneutic the pattern theology uh he hasn't moved on to the point of completely dismissing it you know, he recognizes the utility in it. Um, you know, he talks about a different locus for the pattern, uh, you know, rather than in specific commands in the embodiment of Jesus himself, which um, I, th- I think there's some division there that uh, that maybe. Well, there's there's some false separation there, but we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But. He, he approaches, even as he's moving away from uh, this blueprint theology, this blueprint hermeneutic, he does so without completely dismissing it, without completely dismissing the utility of it, and certainly without completely dismissing those who actively practice it. Um, he, he has significant questions about it, but he doesn't out and out dismiss it. Uh, he doesn't out and out dismiss any concept of patterns. In fact, he sort of centers his pattern around Jesus, which I don't think people uh, who would reject his interpretation, I don't think the readers, I don't think any reader is going to, is going to, any honest reader is going to look at scripture and say, we need to follow uh, commands instead of Jesus. You might see that attitude sometimes, but I don't think you're going to have people honestly sort of admitting that. Uh, but he he he's never dismissive of of pattern theology. He has a great love and great respect for it. Um, great respect for the people who uh, who practice it, and you know acknowledges that he 
you know, at one point he basically acknowledges, you know, I expect to see those people in heaven. Uh, and it it's something where ultimately he has moved on from that, at least as sort of the main center of his hermeneutic. But he's never out and out dismissive of it in a way that, you know, again, like I've said, when I've encountered people who have moved past it, they are generally dismissive and resentful of the hermeneutic itself and of the people who still practice it. Um, And so anything else about the book that you like that you wanted to sort of bring out at this point? I think we're going to go into some more uh, maybe some things we liked a little bit less about the book, but. Anything? Uh, the only thing, I'm sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. Um, the only thing really I would add is just that you keep referencing, and this isn't a bad thing, it's just you've referenced it a few times, this notion of being dismissive once you're outside. Um, that's not an uncommon phenomenon. I'm sure there's a term for it. I'm sure that uh, sociologists and psychologists have studied it at length, but for my purposes, I'll just throw out the term. There is a part of deconversion psychology where when a person uh, steps out of the circle, so to speak, uh, pulling an old and deep reference from one of my favorite bands that will never be name dropped on this show. You'll have to figure that one out for yourselves. But uh, when you step outside the circle, Uh, one of two things tends to happen. You either kind of put uh, on rose-colored glasses and kind of say, well, you know, it wasn't that bad, this or that sort of thing, or the other way entirely of of I lost years of my life to this thing and I must hate it as fervently as I love it. John Mark Hicks, to his credit, and many people are able to do this as well, He chose a third way, partially because he didn't step completely outside the circle. He's, for lack of a better term, he's at one of the outer rims of the circle. Uh, And so rather than just mindless ambivalence and sweetness towards the thing or mindless rage towards the thing, he tries to assess it honestly, recognize its strengths, and recognize here are the areas for improvement. And again, that's just a part of quote unquote deconversion psychology, but that that's just what happens. You'll either resent it, love it from afar, or do what Dr. Hicks has done and try to assess it honestly. And usually they are all mutually exclusive of each other. Obviously hate and blind love will be but beyond that that that's really the phenomenon you're pulling on when you say these people will end up criticizing or being really harsh towards it once they leave and that sort of dismissive attitude that he doesn't exhibit is something that i encountered in a book called uh, all people all times by Jeffrey Stevenson. I reviewed it a few years ago as a part of a graduate level hermeneutics class at Fried Hardeman. And Sam, I hated the book. I hated that book so much 
because it basically tried to look for a different hermeneutic, a different model, um, you know, and it, 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 it used test cases with regard to baptism and different aspects of worship. And the conclusion uh, to the book was worse than a shoulder shrug. The conclusion to the book was basically that it's kind of a fruitless endeavor to search for a hermeneutic, um, which that's not exactly how the author of that book laid it out, but that's exactly how it came across. I hated the book so much I threw it away. I got done with it. I submitted my review and I got rid of the book. I hated the book a lot. I, I cannot stress to you how much I hated that book. Um, Dr. Hicks, thankfully, doesn't do that. He takes the situation. He takes the endeavor very seriously, uh, gives it the respect that, you know, for someone that very clearly does not arrive at the same conclusion uh, that most people who adhere to pattern theology would on a number of issues uh, treats it with the respect and care that I really think only a person who understands the background of those who practice that particular hermeneutic um, can, can have. He, he, he does an excellent job in handling it, uh, I think. So what don't you like so much about the book? What sort of stuck out in a not so uh, in a not so likable way or at least as well, we'll use your favorite word problematic. I muted my mic so you wouldn't hear me just scream into a pillow furiously at the dreaded P word. But um. More seriously, uh, what uh, the things that I disliked about the book uh, are less just categorical criticisms and more just specific moments uh, that I highlighted. Now, granted, my highlights of this book uh, much resemble my uh, my reading of it, as in, like, if I were to hand my annotations in to Dr. Hicks. He would probably hand them off to the psychology department at uh, Lipscomb and uh, ask them to make sure that he's not being stalked by a serial killer. But um, getting away from uh, self-deprecating humor about me, uh, there were just uh, there were there's two broad criticisms. There's the one that I'm always going to have because it's just ingrained into my nature. Christianese. Uh, I just, there's a point at which I just, I sent you a link to an article about semantic satiation or satiation, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And that's uh, the term for when a word or phrase is repeated so often or so frequently that your brain stops perceiving it as meaningful. Uh, just for fun, viewer at home, you can do this to yourself. Say water as many times as you can over the course of a minute. You will feel yourself stop even perceiving that you're talking. But um, with reference to books 
in this vein, there are certain turns of phrase, there are certain uses of words that over the course of the book mean less and less to me. There were there are specific times where I just highlighted a phrase and just said, this doesn't mean anything. And in fairness, most of those phrases that I highlighted and said, this doesn't mean anything, were followed up by a helpful explanation. And that left me thinking, that is meaningful, cut out the meaningless part and just have the meaningful expression. Um, which could probably be said to me very frequently. Uh, the, one, the two that come to mind as far as that goes is the phrase, Jesus is the pattern, and uh, the phrase eschatological assembly. Both of those were phrases that I highlighted and I just said, this doesn't mean anything. And that's not a critique, that's not a slight against Dr. Hicks, that's not a slam on those phrases, but it's also... Uh, on display with the use of the term gospel, um, especially if you read a lot in TGC or the gospel coalition circles, you're kind of aware of jokes about the gospel according to X or how to find the gospel in X. And it's a joke that's made because you end up, if you run in those circles, uh, there's books about gospel-centered youth ministry, gospel-centered uh, X, gospel-centered Y, and eventually it all just kind of comes together into a mold, into a mess that doesn't have meaning. All of that to say, when you read Dr. Hicks's book over a very short period of time, you're going to get tired of certain phrases, and that is not a really substantive criticism. It is more a just built-in flaw of books within like Christian circles that write. The second one is that there are times where uh, there are two specific instances that I highlighted where there are times that uh, Dr. Hicks or a person he's quoting is wearing a kid glove on an iron fist. And I'll just reference one specific instance. Give me just a moment to find the uh, actual. Uh, okay, great. Uh, this is a quote from Alexander Campbell, uh, he, or at least a reference to his works, uh, uh, talking about uh, different practices, and this is at uh, location 2040 in the book, uh, Kindle edition, for those that are curious, uh, that uh, Campbell didn't think that a specific set of issues was a test of fellowship for Christians, but uh, with reference to the ancient order of things, he thought that the ancient order was, quote, necessary to the happiness and usefulness of Christians. And I just remember reading that phrase and just thinking, this is weak. This is noncommittal. This is stating your position strongly, but being afraid of coming off as dogmatic or being too much of a jerk about it. Um, there's another instance. I'm, I would have to really just dig through uh, different uh, uh, highlights 
many of which that I made, some of which were actually quite good. But um, that tendency that we have, and I've done it myself, so this is not me trying to bludgeon Dr. Hicks to death over something that he alone is guilty of. But to me, I would rather a person not take a position at all as opposed to taking a position, having very strong reasons behind it, and then backing off of it. To me, at least, and I will grant that this is more a bug of my way of thinking rather than a feature or a necessary thing that other people have to do. But if you believe something to be right, I don't see the point in trying to be overly diplomatic about other people being wrong. By all means, be diplomatic, be polite, be fair, but it's okay to tell other people, I think you're wrong about this. And especially with reference to the frequency of the Lord's Supper and that practice, being that unwillingness to just say, I think these other groups are wrong about this. I don't think it's going to keep them out of heaven, but given the opportunity, I would like to change their mind on it in the here and now. I don't see a problem with that. And Dr. Hicks doesn't quite join me in that. That's not to say that he wouldn't try to change people's minds about that if given the opportunity. Uh, Excuse me, his appendix on baptism. I think is proof that when he holds a position, he is willing to try to convince others of that position. But there are just times where I read those things and I think this was kind of weak in following through on it. But again, that's like two instances in a book that we now know is roughly 250 pages. Two out, like, let's say those are each a page a piece. Two out of 250, still a very good percentage. You're batting in the Hall of Fame if you only miss on the swing that much. Yeah, I to your first point um, with regard to the Christianese, I'm a hundred percent with you there. Uh, that was that was something that really really stuck out like a sore thumb is is once he introduced his his own framework the one he uh presents as the alternative those phrases just kept getting thrown out as if they were buzzwords repeatedly um and it's the sort of thing that probably needed a little bit more elaboration um, one of the issues I had is that some of the elaboration, I'm just not sure I'm, I'm with him on. So I mentioned the appendices uh, are worth the price of admission alone. Uh, the first one containing three case studies, they're worth the price of admission because it gives you a very concise uh, and very uh, helpful look into how his hermeneutic functions. One of the things I think it reveals, though, is that, at least in one of the appendices, I don't think it functions that well. Um, With regard to baptism, uh, that third section of the first appendix, the first appendix, 
Um, you know, he, he talked about different case studies and I think it's with the first and third ones. The first one has to do with assembling and the third one has to do with baptism. The middle one has to do with uh, racial segregation of churches, but he handles that slightly differently, which is, which is fine. Um, but he describes situations where people have asked him about a particular issue. Uh, you know, one individual asks him at one point about uh, needing to attend services and uh, one Another individual asks him about the need to be baptized or when a person should be baptized. Uh, I, I forget exactly how the question is framed there. Um, uh, she, uh, well, it, it's with the significance and need to be baptized uh, in the here and now as opposed to putting it off uh, is, is what's being discussed there in that third part of appendix, uh, the first appendix. And the response is basically, well, look at what Jesus did. Uh, you know, was Jesus baptized? And for the first part of the appendix, you know, did Jesus assemble with God's people? Um, I think that's actually a quite helpful approach for the first point, especially when we live in a world where people, you know, only want to, you know, there's a there's a not or there's a significant number of people who believe in this sort of spirituality, this sort of relationship with Jesus that is somehow independent of the church, independent of his people. Uh, and I think it's actually very helpful to point out that, you know, Jesus, who had a relationship with God the Father uh, that is discussed at length in the book of John especially, made a point of assembling with, you know, God's people. Uh, and, and following his example there is helpful. But with regard to baptism, there's so much rationale in Scripture for why a person should be baptized outside of Jesus being baptized that I think the hermeneutic, uh, if it doesn't, if it doesn't outright fail, then at least, at the very least, it misses some pretty key aspects uh, of baptism uh, of of what it's for uh you know what happens there and 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 he references some of those things but to simply sort of sum it up functionally as saying uh you know we do it because jesus did it well if you're referring to jesus baptism specifically i'm i'm not sure i'm with you there uh you know we um, we do that because of something jesus did yes but i I think that sort of that particular application of the hermeneutic, and, and again, I, I'm being a little reductive in talking about it. I understand that, um, but I that one made my, made me raise my eyebrows just a little bit. Can I offer a counter perspective? Sure thing. I adored that section on baptism. Like, in fact. Uh, that uh, was one of the handful of blue highlights I handed out in the book. Uh, that's not to say that like other colors of highlights mean it's bad. It's just I decided to use blue when I wanted to highlight something as exceptionally good. And uh, the section that I highlighted in blue, uh, and this will help illuminate some of the points you were making, but also set the backdrop for the point I'm about to make. Uh, this is, again, from Appendix 2, or 
or one of the appendixes, uh, and it's addressing baptism. Quote, I asked her if she was a disciple of Jesus. Yes, she said. Of course I am. I love Jesus. That means you follow Jesus wherever he goes, doesn't it? I responded. Yes, she said. So I said, then follow Jesus into the water. Jesus thought it was significant. It was important for him, and God affirmed his decision. It must have been important to God. And the Holy Spirit anointed him after his baptism. It seems the Holy Spirit thought it was important. If you are a disciple of Jesus, follow Jesus into the water. End quote. My note that I left at that point was this passage single-handedly redeems this entire book. That's not to say it needed redemption, but if it had, that would have done it for me. I like that passage not because I wholesale endorse the line of argument, but because I think it demonstrates the utility of the, the argument and the way that Dr. Hicks goes about interpreting scripture and the model that he proposes, because, Chris, as you know, it is very difficult to change people's minds with facts and logic. As much as I love facts and logic in all caps, people tend not to change their minds because of them. You can affirm a position that someone already holds, you can bolster their confidence in it with facts and logic, but... Uh, ben Shapiro doesn't change minds when he destroys the lid with facts and logic. He galvanizes people that already agree with him. And that's nothing against uh, Ben Shapiro. That's just a statement of the reality. What Dr. Hicks does here is instead of presenting the rock solid case, I think, for the necessity of baptism from Scripture uh, that I've written about, that I've developed, that I've preached on. Uh, that you've preached on, that everybody and not their mother, but in some cases their father, have preached on. Dr. Hicks bypasses all of that and goes with the, a quote-unquote narrative approach of, look, if you think that following Jesus is important, then you have to follow Jesus into the water. He went into the water. It mattered. And so I appreciate that approach as a tool in the toolbox because one it's effective clearly and two it doesn't exclude the other realities it doesn't exclude romans 6 and paul's discussion about what baptism means for a believer it doesn't exclude discussions on first peter 3 21 or acts 2 38 it doesn't exclude those things but it is a subtle way to get past the defenses one might have against those. So all of that to say, I really enjoyed and appreciated that, although I would concede that this is not the only approach I would take in demonstrating the significance of baptism. And in fairness to Dr. Hicks, he does in the paragraph immediately following the one you referenced uh, discuss uh, in part, Romans chapter 6, especially verses 3 through 6, uh, that's a passage he cites uh, with regard to the uh, connection uh, to Christ's uh, sacrifice and being raised with him on the last day. Um, the I, I guess the problem I have with it is the fact that you know, this is something where he's trying to show how the hermeneutic applies, uh, how the how it's sort of a framework for understanding the text 
and if if that's going to be what the appendix is supposed to be about, um, I would want something a little bit more comprehensive uh, than than what's there. Again, I, I I I agree with you by and large about convincing people. You, you've got to have those facts rock solid, of course, but at the same time, you've got to make that personal connection. Otherwise, people just aren't going to change uh, their minds about anything. Um, and I think he does a good job of doing that generally in the appendix. Uh, but sort of the uh, the the reasoning for baptism uh, sort of becomes obscured. And in a book that is dedicated to uh, you know searching for a way of interpreting the text, I, I don't think uh, obscuring that reasoning in any stretch, in any capacity, uh, is, is helpful. He, again, he does go into detail at least at some points with it. Um, but you know, it, at the same time, when he puts forth, forth, forth is not a word when he puts forward the approach of, you know, doing it because Jesus did it. Um, I would be uncomfortable with that rationale being, presented as the only uh, rationale. Um, I would be deeply uncomfortable with that. And in that situation, uh, I may have missed it, but in that situation, that particular one he describes, uh, that's the only rationale he brings forth. Um, and so, again, I, you know, I don't disagree with the appendix wholesale by any stretch. I, I just think that, there could have been better care taken uh, with regard to how that particular one was presented. I actually think the the approach works quite well uh, for the first two sections um, of that appendix. He handles uh, the age old issue of getting people to go to worship on Sunday morning uh, very simply and very helpfully. And he handles racial segregation within churches, which is something we probably don't talk about enough even today. Um, he handles that quite well, too. I just, that sort of stuck out to me. Uh, that, that section on baptism made me raise my eyebrows just a little bit. Um, and, and you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and suggest that he's, uh, that he's wrong in his teaching. I just think that his presentation of it was, not as helpful as it could have been. Um, I think he could have complemented uh, the the discussion about doing it because Jesus did it uh, a little bit better than he did. Um, given that it is a book on hermeneutics, given that it is seeking to find a way to apply that hermeneutic hermeneutical method, um, you know, I I also thought that he could have been, like you said, a bit firmer. Uh, on a few different issues, um, you know, it, if if he perceives the shortcomings of a blueprint theology uh, to be in need of correction, then you know, call them out as such. Uh, there's a way to do that, of course, without being dismissive. There's a way to do that without being. Uh, you know, disrespectful, bitter, resentful, of course. Um, but, you know, that, that tone could have been a little stronger. Um, 
because I get the impression reading through this book that, you know, if if I'm someone who believes in a blueprint theology, which, you know, I certainly hold to in a lot of different respects. I don't believe in it as a comprehensive hermeneutical method. Uh, you know, I'm not so polarized in that regard. But, you know, when he's presenting his argument, I get the impression that, you know, he wants me to move along. He wants me to come uh, over to a more theological based hermeneutic. But, you know, if I stay where I'm at, there's there's almost no downside to that whatsoever. Um, you know, there's some inconsistencies there. There's some issues that are going to be there that might not be there if I move forward. But, you know, that there's that it's not necessarily uh incorrect for me to stay where i'm at and that's sort of the other big issue i have with the book is that you know if you're presenting a an alternative way of interpreting the text that's a significant thing um and i you know even if you're going to be respectful of where i'm at and again i greatly appreciate that respect but even if you're going to be respectful of where i'm at um I think there's more that could have been done to move me. Granted, this is not a comprehensive systematic theology. This is not a comprehensive systematic ecclesiology. This is basically a, uh, you know, a somewhat survey of his hermeneutical method uh, presented at least in part as a memoir of his personal faith. Um, You know, it, some of these goals that I'm wishing it would have accomplished he didn't necessarily mean for the book to accomplish. They're just things I would have liked to have seen. Um, but, you know, I, there are going to be people who read this who say, oh, well, that's another way of doing it. But there's there's no real pull for them to change very much at all outside of maybe reading a couple of things differently. Um, and, you know, it's, I don't want to say stronger language because that may give off the wrong impression. Um but firmer language uh, in, in some areas may have been more helpful. Um, all in all, I, I mean, I still really enjoyed the book. I, I still think it's very helpful. Um, Sam, who, who is this book for? Uh, if you had a spare hard copy of the book, who are you giving it to? Not specifically, of course, but um, who, who benefits most from Searching for the Pattern by John Mark Hicks? I would, uh, my good faith assumption would be that uh, the person that would benefit uh, the most from it in my mind would be uh, younger preachers or preachers who uh, feel kind of frustrated and are trying to put out the feelers for, is is it just me? Am I the only one that's feeling like there are limitations to sinny, so to speak, or is there a limitation to just trying to force everything into a blueprint, especially because there is a tendency when you start to be dissatisfied with something that you want to completely abandon it. And searching for a pattern uh, uh, does a really good job, I think, of pointing out gently the shortcomings of a just robust cookie-cutter uh, approach to the cine method, the pattern blueprint method, 
that says there are shortcomings, there are limitations, there are times where it will not leave you fully satisfied. But there is a better way than total abandonment and sneering as you walk out the door. And so that um, that kind of showing a better way, even with some of the shortcomings that we would perceive, I think is the greatest benefit and makes preachers, teachers, and generally the interested layperson, let's say, that is trying to feel out these issues. Those are the three categories I would say people, they would most benefit from it. Yeah, I'm generally with you there. Uh, I, I think it would be helpful, if not necessarily easy, to give this to someone who is pretty set in stone within a uh, blueprint theology, a pattern theology, um, because what often happens, and Dr. Hicks references this in the book, is that we will look at different commands and examples and necessary inferences, the sine that you've mentioned a couple of times now. Um, we will look at those in the text and we will abstract them from their context and we will uh, do nothing uh, in the way of connecting them to the life and work of our Savior. And Dr. Hicks does an excellent job of sort of making that connection between those things, uh, between the commands uh, and the life and work of Jesus. And even if we don't necessarily agree with all of his conclusions. Um, you know, again, I'm not sure what exactly he has convinced me of in reading the book, uh, except this. Um, even if nothing else is true of the book, he's gotten me to take a closer look at the commands, at the things that I hold as true, as I hold as important, that I hold as necessary. Uh, and consider them in light of the life and work of Christ. Um, and, and that's that's valuable in and of itself. Uh, people need to, yes, we, we say all the time, people need to understand why they believe what they believe. Uh, but that understanding doesn't need to be limited to just simply a syllogism. It doesn't need to be limited just simply to, you know, some you know, a list of three or four proof texts uh, that I can rattle off in order to defend my belief in whatever. It has to be re uh, rooted in the life and work of Christ, his saving sacrifice, um, and the significance of that in light of the life and work of the church. And he does, it, if the book doesn't accomplish anything else, which it accomplishes plenty else, let's be be clear but if it doesn't accomplish anything else the most important thing it accomplishes is uh, refocusing these commands um, these instructions will sort of sum up Sinny that way uh, in light of the life of Jesus because you know one of the things he points out is we in the church we in churches of Christ tend to focus very heavily on uh, Acts and the epistles, right? And he basically says that's, you know, that's not all of Scripture. Um, and if all of this is rooted in Jesus, uh, then, well, Jesus is the example. And while, again, that phrase gets used a bit 
too much in the text. Um, I understand why he uses the phrase too much, too. It's because too many people, uh, even in churches of Christ, too many people have lived their lives, have gone about the work of the churches. If Jesus is not the example, in some areas he's only loosely tied to some of the things that we do. Um, and so that's, I think, the most helpful thing in in the book is that refocusing. And so anyone that could stand to benefit from sort of refocusing that has grown cold and stale in their faith, that has become rote in their practices, um, could stand to benefit from reading the book. Again, any misgivings I have about the book uh, are really there's very little in the way of presentation and uh, there's a little bit more maybe in the way of conclusions, but I, I think the work is excellent. Um, it's probably the, uh, the most relevant work that's been written on the subject in, in quite some time. Um, you know, certainly uh, apart from the institutional mainstream split anyway. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see how people will interact with it moving forward, you know, down through the years, if you will. Um, you know, I, I, I hope it's what I'm worried about, Sam, is that people are going to see, you know, that it's John Mark Hicks, that it's someone with whom they disagree with on a number of issues that. You know, he's a professor at Lipscomb and Lipscomb disagrees with them on a number of issues and all these different things. And they're going to see that and they're not going to give it the time of day. Um, and I think that's a shame because there's a lot to be gained from the book. Uh, there's there's a lot. Uh, people can benefit many different ways from the book. And also uh, it gives some insight as to how people sort of move in their belief and why people move in their belief. And even if you don't agree uh, with a word of what he says in the book, right? Even if you don't agree with a single thing he says in the book, which I would have a hard time imagining that, but even if you don't, it at the very least gives you some insight into why he made the changes he did. Uh, and that that's helpful by itself. Uh, and so, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who probably could benefit from reading this who won't give it a chance just because of the names associated with it. That's that's a real shame. Um, so. And, and I would tend to agree, but you also have to bear in mind uh, there there are always going to be people who, well, for whom their loyalties and their lines in the sand are more important than stepping outside of those circles that they've drawn and giving other people a fair shake. Well, and we, we talked about this yesterday with regard to politics and I think it's, it's even more true um, if not as pronounced uh, within spiritual discussions that we don't want to cede any ground. And what I mean by that is, we don't want to acknowledge our own weaknesses and our own flaws and our ways of thinking, our own inconsistencies, if you will. Um, and 
we don't ever want to acknowledge what the other side, if you will, is doing uh, right, what they get right, how they articulate things, um, you know, what they have to offer. Uh, we we have some sort of test, and if they if a person doesn't pass the test, we don't consider what they say except for learning how to debunk whatever it is they say. Um, and that's that's not a way to grow. That's not a way to uh, mature. Um, you know, to be clear, uh, you know, I'm I don't necessarily characterize myself as uh, subscribing to a pattern or blue, blueprint theology wholesale. Uh, but functionally, on a number of issues, I do just because I don't see a biblical alternative uh, to a number of issues. Um, I, I see uh, that as the best approach in a number of different ways. But that doesn't make uh, that doesn't make what he has to offer any less valuable. Um, and so hopefully it's something people give a chance. Now, granted, we're sitting here discussing this eight months after it's been released, right? We sort of missed the wave, uh, of reviews, if you will. Yeah, uh, we're definitely striking while the iron is undergoing its own heat death. Yeah. So, but hopefully it's something, it, it's a resource people will turn to whether or not they agree with it. Um, it, it's a resource and it is a helpful one. It's probably the highest praise I can give the book is that it is, it is useful whether or not you agree with it, whether you're not, whether or not you agree with his position on a number of different issues. It is a useful work. Um, that's not always true for books, especially ones written on this issue. Um, I do not need 50 books telling me, uh, what blueprint theology is, what a blueprint hermeneutic is, and how that applies to instrumental worship, right? I do not need 50 books telling me how that position is silly and how people who adhere to it are silly. But something like this, I, you know, I've got time for works like this. Uh, granted, you don't need much time to read it. It's not a long book. But I've got time for something like this that's going to approach the issue honestly, uh, with a sense of respect for all sides involved, um, and an appreciation for where this issue has gone and where it may go in the future. So, um, any other thoughts about just pattern theology, uh, a blueprint, hermeneutic, just more in general before we uh, sort of call it quits for today? My only real uh, thought that I think could contribute anything meaningful would be that pattern theology, people tend to make that the hill they're willing to die on because for them it is the crucible of every other issue. Uh, people have, uh, people will say like, people will say things like, well, if you don't read the Bible using Cine, how else are you going to read the Bible? And there are some answers to that question are less helpful than others. Or they're going to say, well, if you give up pattern theology, if you give up command, example, necessary inference, if you give up those things, 
then you have to give up all of these things as well. And never mind that I don't think that's true. There is also an unstated presupposition there that those things deserve to be held on to. Now, that is not me rejecting any specific doctrine. I am more than happy to show my COC bona fides to anyone that asks. But we can, if we're not careful, and it's something I'm just as guilty of in other areas and in this area too, it is... It is a temptation to get so wrapped up in defending our pet doctrines. And really, that's why there are 50 books about hermeneutics and about this and that. It's because we feel a knee-jerk need to defend our pet doctrines. Sometimes someone publishes a book, and I think it has been 50 years no one's having this argument anymore, except you and some random person you met in a Facebook group. Yep. Let it go. But at the same time, I think that's more because some people within the church have built their identity not around the biblical text, not around the person and work of Jesus Christ, but around those pet doctrines, those things that make us distinct from every other religious group, some of which aren't even distinctives, which goes into people not knowing church history or not knowing about other groups. And so pattern theology, I think, is going to be something that increasingly gets argued about. Some people will choose to abandon it entirely and go off in different directions. Others will entrench themselves and... Others will kind of just stand around wondering why on earth they're in the middle of a Mexican standoff. So to that point, you know, I constantly think back to the title of the Goebel music book, Behold the Pattern. The text, you know, the text of scripture has a phrase that starts behold the, but uh, it's not the pattern. It's, it's the lamb. I get that that's a nitpick and I get that that's, um, that's me sort of making an issue that isn't necessarily an issue, but it sort of reveals the perspective here that we have oftentimes worshiped the pattern of worship rather than the object of worship um, that we have elevated the pattern to the point, like you said, that that becomes our identity uh, that becomes what we are about. Um, You know, and, and that's, that's not, that's not me sort of, uh, you know, making a caricature of things. That's me just honestly observing what I've seen through the years is that people become so entrenched uh, in pattern theology. You've got you've got people who they know all the reasons why uh, they don't use instrumental music in, in worship and all the reasons why. Uh, the local eldership uh, is arranged the way that it is and who should be elders and how that process goes and all the reasons why uh, they are allowed maybe even perhaps to give to children's homes at the congregational level. But they can't tell you the gospel neatly. They can't um, 
they can't articulate the significance of different events in Jesus' life. Those two things don't always go hand in hand. Um, what I mean by that is uh, it is not true that, uh, that you know, ardent blueprint hermeneutical uh, 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 proponents – are totally ignorant about, or at least largely ignorant about the work of Christ. Uh, Dr. Hicks acknowledges that in his book. You know, he acknowledges his own upbringing that, you know, these were people who loved Christ, who, you know, he was taught the the parables and miracles of, of Christ growing up and all these different things. But occasionally, and perhaps more occasionally than we'd like to realize, we focus so much on different commands. We focus so much on different activities of the church. Uh, we do so at the expense of focusing on the Savior. And ultimately, I think that's where blueprint theology or blueprint, a blueprint hermeneutic, when it fails, that's where it fails, is if we elevate the commands to the point of obscuring our Savior. Um, granted, in theory... They should go hand in hand, right? Uh, that we that we obey because of the Savior. Uh, that we obey uh, because we understand what we're doing against the backdrop of His work, His life. But if we're not careful when we subscribe to that uh, blueprint hermeneutic, if we're not careful in not how we do things, because we're plenty careful about how we do things. If we're not careful in why we do them, uh, we become legalistic. There's there's not another word for it. Um, we become legalistic in how we handle uh, the practice of the church. We come we become legalistic uh, in the different things that we do. Uh, we use those things as tests of fellowship uh, without actually considering the person under whom we ought to be united. And that's that's I think where it fails when it fails. I think there's a lot of usefulness to uh, a pattern approach to a lot of different issues. Um, but if it starts obscuring the Savior, if it starts obscuring what he did, uh, and if it starts obscuring how I ought to live in light of that sacrifice, um, it becomes legalistic by its very nature. Uh, and that's yeah, that's where it becomes problematic. Thank you for listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast. We'll see you next time.